1: Hello there, Nookie, and welcome to a -a one-of-a-kind show. I asked a woman to join me to discuss her transition from pro-dom Amanda Wildfire to full-time educator Reb Holmberg. Amanda is a legendary Minneapolis-based dominatrix who's been providing beautiful moments for her clients for more than three decades and also taught classes in BDSM technique, At national BDSM and fetish conventions, BDSM lifestyle groups, and most recently a four-month intensive for aspiring professional dominance. Retiring last year from her role as the mistress, they are driven by the desire to bring their accumulated knowledge and experience with thousands of BDSM players over 30 years to therapists, researchers and educators. A recce master with certifications in both clinical and transpersonal hypnosis, Rep currently studies with the Institute for Sexuality Education and Enlightenment, known as ISEE, in the Sexuality Educator Asex certification program. In 2001, Rev was the recipient of the Jerome Foundation Performing Arts Grant for the scripting, production, and performance of the one-woman show Confessions of a Lesbian Dominatrix. In a first, my guest requested a special outfit for me to wear to do the interview. And while I normally wear a cat suit for comfort, I felt like I was dressing for a scene with one of my shiny play suits, a posture collar, and cuffs, the uniform of the day. Unlike most shows that start with the first five, Reb had other ideas. She was about to set the podcast aflame with her gift of power and conversation.
2: And let me know that the mistress was in. You may address me as Amanda or mistress. I will do that then. So thank you very much. Where'd you get the collar? Sub shop. Okay. Mm-hmm. And was it um like a custom set that uh had no wrists and ankles or
1: no? I have uh I have actually got my my cuffs and my ankle cuffs at uh at Amazon, but I now have a new set of fur line hanging cuffs, which are my oh, favorite. Oh very nice.
2: Absolutely my favorite. That's you're wearing my favorite color, of purple.
1: Well, purple will always uh, remind me of Batgirl, and that's what got me into this in the first place. <laughs> so you watched the old series as well? I, was, uh, I watched it when it first came out. <laughs>
2: I am old enough to have watched it when it came out in 66. Absolutely. And then it was on reruns mm-hmm. from forever and ever. And I'll tell you what I remember from that show. First of all, I wanted a bat cave. And I wanted um, a car that came out of nowhere, like that came out of the Mm -hmm. bushes that had fins. And I also really wanted to wear like a spandex superhero outfit. Except I really was, I have to say, I was really more about the villains. And I'll tell you what frustrated me the most about that show was that it was so sexy and so hot and featured so many bondage positions mm-hmm. and different predicaments and things like that. But what would always happen? It always escape. That's right. It would be enough to drive a sane dom crazy. So I decided that when I grew up, mm-hmm. I was going to be the villain that nobody could escape from. right and I would just lay in wait that's beautiful like a dominant villainess (laughs) so you know you can really say kids shows have a lot of influence on kinky people you know I've heard from a lot of people that watching something like Bugs Bunny get into drag over and Mm -hmm. over again certainly influenced their desire not only to be a trickster but also to be a cross-dressing trickster Mm -hmm. So what is your first memory of being interested in spandex catsuits? Was it the old Batman show or?
1: It was because uh, I watched it when it originally came out. And Mm -hmm. then when the reruns were going on during my puberty, my parents hadn't given me the talk. Uh So I didn't even know what an orgasm was. Right, right. And the first time that it happened to me, I was watching Batman being tied up by Mr. Freeze. Fantastic. Second time it happened, Batgirl was getting tied up. (laughs) Third time it happened, Emma Peel. And then about the first seven times, it was watching something that was involving bondage or peril. And by the time I knew what an orgasm was, I knew I had already been, I'm not gonna say marked, but
2: I knew that that's
1: what caused it. Imprinted. Imprinted.
2: Great. And what I love Great about part. that story is that it was just primetime family shows mm-hmm. that did it. None of this, you know, it wasn't as though you found a stack of bondage magazines in your uncle's shed, right? it was sitting right next to your family or potentially sitting next to your family. Mm-hmm. I love
1: that. It was pretty amazing to finally let go and realize that's mm-hmm. what happened to me. Mm-hmm. And we'll, we'll talk a little bit about mm-hmm. that. Let's get into the show. Shall we?
2: Oh, I, I'm into the show.
1: Oh, I, I figured I'm there. we're going to get into the show the way that I normally
2: do. Because this is about you as well. So, well, I think this is, I think our conversation has been about me, hasn't it?
1: Yes. And I will include it in there. But I would like to get to our first five, which is how we usually start the show. But I love the fact that you have total control over how the show is going so far.
2: I have total control. When somebody's in a collar and cuffs sitting in front of me, it's kind of hard for me not to be, don't you think? Very true.
0: So we will start with the first five, five questions about
1: firsts for Mistress Amanda Wildfire. First time you ever put a collar on a slave or a sub in front of you and your feelings doing it.
2: Hmm. When was the first time that you had a collar put on you? Like, how did it feel? Did you look at the person or did you focus on the sensation of it going around your neck? I
1: think I focused on the sensation of it because it was a first time. Mm. The first time I had a symbolic collar put on me was a Christmas gift that wasn't officially a collar, but it had very, very, uh, serious implications to me Mm -hmm. about the fact that a woman who I saw as my dom was putting something around my neck uh, that when I watched her eyes and I saw her put it around my neck and after she put it around my neck I realized I never got a chance to see what it looked like. Mm -hmm. So I could only see it in pictures and see it in the mirror and it led to some amazing feelings, which were wonderful as we were a dynamic, but then became very painful after she moved back home uh, during the holidays and our dynamic somewhat dissipated. So that was difficult. Did you ever have
2: anyone lock a collar onto you?
1: I have not. Because one of the things I will tell you is that this show has allowed me to talk to so many different people Mm -hmm. and so many different levels from fetish model to educator, to author, to professional dominatrix. And I am still relatively inexperienced when it comes to that. All of mine is lifestyle play. All of it has been play with friends or people I've come to know. I have never set foot into, I take it back, I have set foot into one professional dungeon where I was helping as a photographer at one time, but I've never set foot in one where I said, oh, wow, I'm the person that is going to be uh, controlled at this point. Um, I long to do that, but I have yet to do it because of either my public-facing job in the past, or uh, the fact that uh, we're just coming out of a very long period where we didn't do much of anything.
2: That's quite true. That's quite true. Do you feel like it would feel different if it was locked on?
1: Very much so. I mean, part of my earliest fantasies was being locked in either a spandex or a latex catsuit. Uh, even more so now where it's about being totally locked in encasement and feeling what that would be like and
2: being under the trust and control of another. That's so fabulous. Cause to me, that's really what ownership feels like when you can't get it off yourself. Mm-hmm. And somebody has put you in a position of really depending on them um, where they, you know you really don't feel like you have a choice and depending on how you feel about the person you don't want a choice. And to me a padlock is something that is almost just as important as the collar so yeah.
1: explain the first time and tell me your emotions the first time you did that oh. to someone
2: gosh um, well first let me back up and say that to me collaring is is really about control more than ownership mm-hmm. um and I often tell clients that I like to lock the cock and ball harnesses onto them because to me, collaring a man's penis is more meaningful than putting a collar around his neck. Mm -hmm. Uh, I can do all kinds of things to the penis once it's locked down and tied down, then I feel like I take ownership of it. Um, A collar around the neck is more symbolic of, I think, uh, a wedding ring or some very personal romantic kind of... uh, I mean, I know a lot of people feel like they can't bottom without a collar on, so I don't wanna say that it's meaningless to me, but it is much more interesting to me to lock up somebody's genitals, say, put them in a chastity. And particularly a chastity that cannot be removed, mm-hmm. uh, a chastity that's been custom made for them, or like a Latowski that goes over their entire pelvis and is designed to be worn long term. Mm-hmm. Um, how did I feel emotionally? I I felt tremendous satisfaction because you see, you know, you you see a lot of bondage on television and in the movies, and you even see a lot of it in porn, and it's the inescapable aspect of it that is erotic for me and the fact that the person cannot touch themselves without my permission or that I can stimulate them say with an electric box that is hooked up to electrodes underneath the chastity I can uh, control the vibrators by remote so that I could tease the person endlessly and they would not be able to get an erection or uh, they could be forced to orgasm again and again and again um, without being able to stop. So I think that to me is this a very um, hmm, satisfying and empowering sensation. The first
1: time you presented yourself as Amanda Wildfire.
2: Oh, gosh, I remember that very clearly. Um So I was very fortunate to meet somebody who wanted to turn their business into a professional dungeon because in Minnesota it's legal to be a dominatrix. And so I had to come up with a name and immediately I wanted to be named after um, Endora of uh, Bewitched, right? (laughs) the the evil mother-in-law, because she was always so funny.
1: Mm
2: -hmm. me like I like to put the pun in punishment you know like I really like to have somebody laugh so hard it hurts I love putting people into predicaments where they're laughing and that hurts them Um, so the very first time I walked into the room with my very first client I was both afraid because I was in a brand new situation and I was afraid that I didn't know enough about male anatomy because I was quite familiar with uh, women's anatomy at that point. I'd been um, doming in the, the dyke community for a couple of years at that point. And while I had dildos and I had some cock and ball harnesses and I had seen some pictures in gay magazines, um, I, I remember the moment that that session ended and it was a huge success. It was 45 minutes i made I don't know, 10 times what I would make in an hour. And that was very empowering because, you know, women don't make a lot of money, especially not, you know, anyway, yeah. I I felt fantastic. I felt like I'd finally found my home and that I had discovered that, guess what, all the things that I had been shamed for out there in reality, for being too tall, too bossy, too, um, I don't know, elaborate, uh, too fantastical, uh, too much. Those were perfect characteristics Mm -hmm. to have as a professional dominant. Those were desired, looked for, sought after. Um, And the more knowledge that I got, I wasn't shamed for trying to get more knowledge which I had been in college, you know, what do you some sort of bookworm? I went from that to being a very desired person because I I liked to study all of the new and different um, techniques out there. And and I liked collecting equipment. I was a gearhead. So I'd say it was a fundamental shift in my reality, John. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. When was the first indicator
1: in your life that this might be something you're going to do?
2: Now, I have to ask you something about yourself because I feel like when somebody discovers who they really are, particularly through the lens of BDSM and fetish, there is a real sense of walking through a door, a portal to a part of yourself that society has asked you for the sake of society or the sake of the betterment of whatever the common good to hide, to suppress. And I imagine you coming from a fairly conventional background, I'm guessing, probably felt a lot of pressure to just not acknowledge and certainly not act upon that part of yourself. So how did it feel when you put on a cat suit for the first time?
1: <laughs> I was born into society. I mean, my name was actually on the social list of the city I lived in. And I remember the first time I put on, it was a pair of sheer energy back in the old days. (laughs) And they still have them now. But that was my first time putting on something that was skin tight. And I just remember the wonderful feeling that it had going over my legs. Mm. And at the time, it turned me on. That was something that I equated part of sex with. As my life has gone on, the catsuit has become more, something more of comfort. Its compression keeps me touched all
2: over and I feel safe. Sure, sure. But when you put on the pantyhose, Mm -hmm. there was that moment that you knew a that it was a transgressive thing to do Mm -hmm. being, you know, heterosexual white male who was Mm -hmm. on the social register, who was tasked with, you know, uh, continuing the patriarchy, let's just Mm -hmm. say that was your job was to support and continue male dominance and to act out by putting on a pair of women's pantyhose i mean where was your gut reaction there i
1: think that through this conversation you'll realize that the cishet male that was born was a lot more complicated than just your everyday straight male And the reason I say that is because throughout my years of therapy, I have been described as androgynous. I have been described as empathetic. I have been described by my gay friends as the gayest thinking straight man they've ever met. Hmm. And when I was going through that after putting on pantyhose for the first time, I imagine what it would be like to live a life in my own apartment where I could wear my leotards and tights
2: whenever I wanted to. And what am I doing at age 58? It wasn't (laughs) quite so much the sensation of being a rebel as it was the sensation of feeling at home or comfort. Right. Right. And so in my
1: scenes, uh, when I say how I identify, I identify as a bottom, but I also identify as damsel. I am not one that necessarily wants to be fully feminized, Mm -hmm. but I think more in the damsel role, which is Mm -hmm. why I do have fake breasts that I wear from time to time when I play. Why I love being bound in a way that it is tantalizing. And if a woman, whispers into my ear, telling me exactly what my predicament is, that just (laughs) puts my headspace in a wonderful place. (laughs) And it's because I am, I am stuck in a moment I can't get out of. And that is joy for me. To be in that moment is absolute (laughs) joy for me. Mm -hmm. Nothing to do with the sex, everything to do with the fact that I can let go and I can feel as though I can please someone while being in a different world.
2: Hmm. And please someone while being passive, which is another thing that men really aren't given the opportunity to be in the heterosexual world anyway. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that there's a lot of pressure, I'm guessing, I'm not a man, um, but I've been told by a lot of my clients that there's a lot of pressure for them to perform dominance in their lives and to ignore those parts of them that would like to be pleased or pampered or tied up or put in a predicament.
1: First time you ever donned a piece of latex and how it felt putting it on.
2: Oh my gosh, all right. Well, tell you, I have to tell you that the first time and the second time because they were so completely different.
1: Okay.
2: Um, okay, so the first time, was at my original place of employment, which was not elegant in the slightest. And this would have been 1991, right? So we did not have latex in the United States. And really the only way to get latex was to maybe order it out of some underground catalog. And it was the molded variety, probably from Europe and probably one size fits all. Mm -hmm. And even though I was quite slender at the time, um, that one size fit all It's all did not fit and I did not know obviously to use powder I was just handed this thing in a plastic bag to put on and I didn't use powder and obviously I didn't use silicone so it was very uncomfortable it felt um the opposite of empowering I wouldn't say humiliating because I took it off and I was not going to wear that thing right because it just Mm -hmm. didn't hurt it did hurt however however The second time that I put on latex was um, a hobble dress with a zip in the back paired with uh, 12 inch platform booties. And they were both imported from the UK and very high quality. And the dress was ectomorph, And the place was um, uh, northbound leather in Canada, in Toronto. And they had this dress hanging there and I'm a larger, taller person. And so I wanted to try it on. And they said, oh no, that's, that's custom for somebody. You can't try that on. Um, Cause it's very hard to find fetish wear in my size, right? Especially off the rack. And then somebody else came running in and said, no, no, he doesn't want it. It's the wrong color. Well, it was burgundy, which is my plum color, which is my mm-hmm. favorite color, of latex. And so they let me put the dress on with the boots and at that time, um, I had no latex whatsoever. And all of a sudden I was wearing like the latex dress of my dreams. And I was probably seven feet tall in those boots. And I remember walking around the store and people were just staring mm-hmm. at me and I was sold. Absolutely. And unfortunately, I had a client who was very closely connected to Damask and maybe about five years later, was able to get a whole bunch of Damask clothing for me. Um, and I started making films with, um... Shh. <laughs> sorry, we can start again. Um, so he brought uh, latex into the US, lots of latex for me. And I started to make films with Gwen Media Productions and the rest is history because uh, yeah, we made, 12 films, um, which I wrote and directed and unfortunately never got the rights to, so somebody else is now collecting all of the, uh, Bob died and, um, my client, he actually owned Gwen Media. Um, so yeah, somebody swooped in and grabbed the rights and, um, they've been collecting the royalties ever since. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the way these things go. However, my love of latex has not dimmed. So, uh, Yeah, it definitely made a huge impression on me. And to me, it was the most elegant form of dominance, although I love leather, because it was European. Mm -hmm. And somehow the Europeans were always 10 years ahead of us, right? (laughs) Final question in the first five.
1: First time you had an indication that the educator and the person who wanted to study what we do was going to take over and not replace Amanda Wildfire, but become your
2: priority? Well, you know, I've always been a teacher learner. Um, I've given classes in BDSM for years and years and years, pretty much ever since I started uh, when I came out into leather in the eighties it was always very exciting to go to San Francisco or New York or Los Angeles and take a bunch of classes and then bring that back to Minnesota and you know, teach a group of women who are really interested in learning bondage or learning sensation play or fire play. Um, and there were a couple of queer groups that I also gave presentations for. So to me, every time I would give a class or share information, inevitably somebody else in the class would come up and say, oh, I like to do it this way. So, or I would like to try this with this. So I always felt like I learned something by teaching and it's not something that I've ever not done. So when the opportunity came during COVID to really reconsider how I could take 30 years of professional dominance and you know thousands of pages of notes from all the sessions I've ever done and all of the cataloging of that information um, out to the rest of the world, I started looking at different ways for programs that I could get involved in. I thought about going back and getting um, a master's in human sexuality. Um, I thought about, you know, how can I connect with other therapists, researchers, people who might be interested in working on this information and utilizing it to broaden an understanding of male sexuality. So that's kind of what started. And then I I entered a program uh, to get ASECT certified. That's the um, Institute of Sexuality Education and Enlightenment, which is an (laughs) online course. And it's a holistic program where you're not just learning about genitals, you're learning about everything that contributes to sexuality. And they're very BDSM and sex worker, and dominatrix positive, so that was a plus. And because of that, I've been able to really connect with um, academic community, researching community, the um, you know communities of therapists, um, LMFTs and such. So I've been giving presentations online ever since I'd say about six months ago I started. So that has been a really important elements to what I've always planned to do. I've always planned to take this information live somewhere else to broaden the, um, the awareness of what professional dominance can do for the greater world. Uh, we're not just dressing up and, you know, grabbing a spatula and giving someone a spanking and charging them 50 bucks, right? There's, there's a lot of world building. There's a lot of um, liminal moments where a person can go from really feeling very awkward about themselves to feeling very empowered by the imagery that has been created, by their participation in it, by the physical feelings they have felt, by being in an atmosphere for, say, uh, one to several days where they feel extre- extremely doted upon, cared about, celebrated. You know, we all want to be seen, heard, and loved, you know, appreciated. And that was, that's what professional dominance does for the most part um, is create a space for that, mm-hmm. create a crucible for people to escape from that rigid males must do this, males must treat women like this. And I'm very blessed to have clients and, and friends that want to go there with me and create those worlds
1: when we return on What Women and Other Wonderful Humans Want. As Midori once said when I started interviewing her, I don't know where we're going, but I'm ready when we
0: return. Have you ever wanted to try something a little kinky in the bedroom, but had no idea where to start? Or maybe your partner just told you they're into water sports. No, not the jet ski kind. And you really wanna fulfill their fantasy, but you're nervous. That's totally normal. I'm Kate Sloan. I'm a sex journalist who's talked about kink in magazines like Cosmo, Playboy, and Glamour, and on my podcast, The Dildorks. My new book, 101 Kinky Things Even You Can Do, is a guide to some of the hottest and best-known kinks out there, from age play to zapping and everything in between. Each section offers three suggestions for ways you can try out your new interest with a partner or even by yourself. Curious? Order your copy now at 101kinkythings.com and start learning new things about your sexuality. Hi, this is Venus, and I have a special message going out to all the single ladies listening right now. What if you could have a committed, loving relationship with a partner who is monogamous to you, but who would love to see you have sexual experiences with others? Sounds too good to be true, right? Well, it's not. You really can have your cake and eat it too. You can have it all. Learn more at venusconnections.com. That's venusconnections.com.
1: Hi folks, Key Barrett here, and I've got a question for you. Do you think your wife or girlfriend makes the best decisions and you wanna support her any way you can? Ladies, do you think your partner works best when they're told exactly what you want? both might be looking for a female-led relationship from mild to wild these strong relationships have one thing in common satisfaction read surrender submit server on audible kindle and paperback today to start your female-led journey and good luck
0: we invite you to follow us on social media check us out at what women want p1 on twitter what women want podcast on instagram And for our kinky friends on FetLife at www.podcast. And now back to this episode of What Women and Other Wonderful Humans Want.
1: Welcome back to the program, joined by Amanda Wildfire from Minneapolis. I'm going to get an opportunity to come up to Minneapolis to visit my daughter here pretty soon, so I'm very much looking forward to that. What is it like being a dominatrix in Minneapolis, because I would guess that you mentioned about the laws being a little bit
2: different, but I'm
1: also guessing that you do a lot of things indoors up
2: there. (laughs) Yeah, I always used to say there's not a hell of a lot else to do, so you might as well be creative and really get into it but um i think the greatest advantage for me working in minneapolis was that i was able to afford my own house right away i could build um, a fairly substantial dungeon with a lot of equipment i wasn't hampered by um high rental charges i was you know i wasn't paying out a lot to live here and for the first, I'd say 20 years of my career, primarily I was seeing clients from out of town. So it was a great place to operate in terms of being halfway from New York, you know, or halfway mm-hmm. across the country to LA. Um, and I also got a lot of international clients from Europe because my specialty being heavy bondage from the get go and then latex, um, I was able to kind of ride that initial wave of. No one else really in the United States doing a whole lot with those um, extended multi-day immersion mm. bondage experiences or rubber doll experiences. So I never really considered myself being from Minneapolis, so to speak. Um, that's the joke. I'm just a nice girl from the Midwest, but I'm actually <laughs> not from the Midwest. I'm from mm-hmm. Philadelphia. Uh, so I'm not a nice girl either. Um, so, yeah, <laughs> you know, um. What I love about Minneapolis though, in particular, is that Minneapolis loves eccentrics. Mm
0: -hmm. And
2: uh, I won a Jerome Foundation grant in 2001 to perform my one woman show, Confessions of a Lesbian Dominatrix. And I performed it six blocks from my house at a community theater and nobody blinked an eye. There were posters all over the city with my picture on it um, in domination gear taken up in my in my dungeon and and people really love that eccentricity. You know, they love that, you know, the landscape is really bleak and the weather is really intense and you have to really have balls to live here. You have to be willing to kind of be a little crazy. And so when that comes out as art or fetish, uh, it's something special. When you started,
1: was my first days, I think, understanding what bondage and fetish was all about. The only way you could really see it was if you would go to an adult bookstore and pick up a Harmony Communications or an HOM magazine, and you would see what the portrayal of it was. Days before the internet, Days before even computers, in some cases, how did you find those very first clients, and how were you able to get the word out about yourself?
2: I think I was very fortunate in that I had a lot of connections to Seattle. Um, I was, you know, as soon as I, I built my dungeon, I was on the cover of Bitches with Whips, um, which is a magazine that was sold in underground, you know, news outlets um i had there were articles about me in new york because i also knew people in new york um and i think too you know being involved with ddi domination directory international from almost its inception gave me a, you know a step ahead right because that clientele was a much more experienced clientele so the clients that wanted to see me pedigrees, they had seen other mistresses that I knew um, or that I would come to know. I would travel extensively to meet other mistresses or to attend BDSM conventions. Um, So I didn't feel limited in the slightest in that way. I felt like I had a group of people in numerous large cities who knew who I was who would have me come and work with them or take over one of the rooms in their multi-room dungeon. I worked at Avalon's Cachet for many years. Um, So it was never an issue of getting the word out, Um, and uh, I was very, very fortunate. I think the 90s were an incredibly special time, because if you were looking for a dominatrix who had great equipment, who had been vetted by David Jackson, who uh, published and edited Domination Directory International, Uh, you had his backing and he had a large group of, you know, wealthy clientele who are interested in high end, very safe, very discreet dominatrix who were not just good looking, but they really knew their stuff. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was a great sorority to be a part of. It was very powerful and I miss it tremendously. I think part of the reason that I have lost interest in um, working is that the nature of BDSM has changed in a way. Um, Obviously, there are a lot of people who do it now who aren't necessarily on the same level as the ladies in Domination Directory International. there's the sense that anybody can do it, and maybe that's good. That makes it more accessible. That makes it more, you know, friendly. You can go to a munch. You can meet somebody. You can join a club. You can do a podcast and meet people that way. You know, like there's the not the kind of limits that everyone had back in the nineties. You could join FetLife and meet a, a thousand people who share your interest in shiny cat suits. Um, so, how do I put it? Um, Perhaps I'm always wanting to look for places where ground can be broken, Mm -hmm. and also realizing my mortality and it's time to pass the baton onto another generation of very powerful, very smart and very capable uh, people. I won't even say ladies or women, I'll just say people who are interested in creating scenes like I did, and they want to learn my style And then make it their own. Can
1: you take us back to those early days and give us a picture of how different it was? Because I am imagining now, with the ability to get on a catalog anywhere in the United States or Europe and find bondage equipment or floggers or paddles or anything involved with it, to be one of the pioneers, which you were, what was it like starting really from scratch?
2: Oh, it was fantastically exciting. It was a very queer environment. So gay men and lesbians and queer people Um, Trans people were very much at the forefront of BDSM in this country, Um, and there was this huge influx of um, uh, heterosexual uh, male dom female subs that came later, but at the beginning, there was not this high degree of sexism, Um, I think that it was very refreshing and magical. We all felt like we were doing something that no one had ever done before and that it was uniquely, and this is what I was trying to get at earlier, it was uniquely transgressive. It was uniquely rebellious. And whenever you would see something on MTV where you know a woman was wearing a corset, it was mind blowing because you'd never seen that before. And so it was perhaps uh, more exciting to be looking for it, hunting for it everywhere. You couldn't just you know, get online and see a thousand images of women in rubber catsuits. Um, and I don't know if that makes it better or worse. It's just different. Um, I used to actually physically have to jump on a plane and fly to London to have somebody measure me for latex and wow. actually go to House of Harlot to order something. You know, you couldn't just get on somebody's website and say, yeah, give me one of these in a uh, purple with um, uh, trim like this. And, uh, you know, you could still customize, but you had to actually physically go to New York, say, and speak to somebody about having um, a straight jacket made of a certain color and kind the thickness of leather in a certain size with locking buckles. and. I just love that sort of thing. Um, Now we can all do it online and it's, it's just as fun, but there was this sense of adventure and of pioneering, definitely, where it was like, you know, when you found a little tiny shop in New York that had two pairs of red latex gloves in men's sizes that went up over the elbow, You were, I mean, this was a place that nobody knew even existed because Mm -hmm. it was still part of this sort of underground. Mm -hmm. And you had to go up three flights in this little tiny elevator, right? In New York, it smelled bad. And you were just like, overjoyed to find the only two pairs of red latex gloves in the entire country. And you were like, yes, you know, Mm -hmm. it was like big game hunting, I suppose.
1: I remember when Dream Dresser was in Georgetown and mm-hmm. in Los Angeles because I was born and raised in the DC area and I remember driving by there and every day I'd be like that's heaven in there
2: mm-hmm. that's that catalog what I would
1: love to be
2: iconic iconic catalog I still probably have a couple of pieces from dream dresser
1: And then when I started traveling for work, I got to go to the Los Angeles one. And I remember walking in and it was probably about eight o'clock at night. I was the only guy there. And I threw myself on the mercy of the court. And I said, I've never imagined what this could be like, but I've always wondered. (laughs) And they couldn't have been nicer in letting me try on things which is where I had my first true latex catsuit that I ever got to try on. And it was like, ooh, this is interesting. I recently purchased my first one a couple weeks ago or about a couple months ago. Doesn't quite fit the way I want it to because it wasn't measured properly. Uh, we did my, I did my best to do it, but um, I just remember the joy of going in there because I knew If this shop existed, other people like me did, too.
2: That's right. That's right. And that's what was so exciting about becoming a pro in the Midwest, because it felt like I was going to, you know, if you build it, they will come. Mm -hmm. It was like that atmosphere because I couldn't find anybody to play with here. You know, there were a few people and they were in relationships and it was just that moment in time where I decided I don't want to play once in a while. Like when I fly to mm. Chicago or to San Francisco, I want to play every goddamn day. And oh, wow. how am I going to do that? You know, how am I going to make that happen for myself? Um, so I have to ask, like, who did you buy your cat suit
1: from? I actually bought it from a place that Vicky DeVica had mentioned called Palace Civet. It It's definitely an entry-level catsuit. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did get it made to order. And it, uh, as I mentioned, I, I messed up the, uh, messed up some of the measurements, but it is what I could afford at the time. Um, I would love to be able to experience a lot more, but I'm not the, I'm not the television producer making $150,000 a year that I used to be. Um, so I just have to be very careful with what I do, but I'm trying to um, get myself to a place where I am able to travel and get to be uh, high there cat suit around the country. I'm actually getting to present for the first time here pretty soon and very much wanna be able to take my interviewing skills out. And I think the more and more I do that, the more and more I'll be able to meet vendors and be able to to get the the wardrobe of my dreams. But for right now- Let's
2: just talk for a minute. Let's, mm -hmm. I'm interrupting and taking charge again. Um, I love it. I'm gonna give you some suggestions. Um, Please. So, and for anyone else who's looking to get their first cat suit, obviously with COVID, you can't just waltz into a tailor and have your measurements made. Um, mm-hmm. But that is really the only way to get proper measurements. You cannot measure yourself for a catsuit um, unless you are a sewer uh, or somebody who has tailoring experience. Mm-hmm. Reason being is that just by taking the measurements, you're contorting your body. Yeah. And a tailor will be able to get exactly the measurements. So my recommendation would be to print out one of the measurement charts from the catsuit company that you're mm-hmm. buying from. Um, and if they don't have a chart, go and find, you know, a chart on somebody else's site mm-hmm. and then have the measurements taken, if not just once, then maybe twice. Mm-hmm. So um, because a catsuit, a proper catsuit can cost, you know, six, $700. And so uh, depending on the thickness of the latex and the manufacturer, so, if you don't get the measurements right and you are ready to invest in a genuine, you know, custom cat suit, uh, not to say the one that you have is, is not genuine, but um, the measurements are important. And mm-hmm. I think now that COVID restrictions are going down, you probably would start there, right, for success. Mm-hmm. Um, same thing with head measurements. Um, the temptation is, of course, oh, you know, I, I don't want anyone to know that I'm getting measurements for a cat suit, you know, and so uh, my suggestion to clients who are getting outfits made is just to say that, you know, it's, it's for a costume, mm-hmm. it's for a Halloween costume, and that the tailor or the, the person who's making the outfit needs all of these measurements, mm-hmm. and uh, the more casually you say it, I mean, they don't care. Most people, mm-hmm. will, most tailors, at least in Minneapolis will do measurements for free. Mm. Um, and it's not a, it's not a complicated procedure. Best thing to do would be either to make an appointment or to show up when um, business is slow. So not five o'clock or six o'clock on a mm-hmm. Friday night. Um, but it's important, you know, to get the thing to fit right. Otherwise it doesn't feel sexy. It feels like that latex that I tried on when I was first trying on latex, where mm-hmm. uh, I thought to myself, oh my God, I hate latex. I'm <laughs> never going to wear latex. It wasn't until I had a client who showed up with um, to the dungeon with a whole custom set of the mask latex mm-hmm. that I realized what real latex was. Mm-hmm. That, was not, um, that was completely accidental. Up to that point, I would have said I hated latex and I would never wear it.
1: hmm Little did you know, it would kind of take over your life. Yeah. And everyone
2: else who comes through here. <laughs> <laughs> Most of my cross-dressing clients have either um, gravitated or, you know, sort of migrated from silky and satiny and regular uh, cross-dressing lingerie and things like that to um, control garments and, um, and latex
1: mm-hmm. for sure. One of the beautiful things about cat suits in general is they are genuinely the greatest mindfulness exercise you can have. There's never any time when you cannot think of a body part and it's not being touched. And to me, that's one of the beautiful parts about mm. wearing cat suits.
2: Mm, I agree. Cat suits
1: and, are fun. And when you take it to the latex. It's literally an armor on top of you. It is something that encompasses every part of you in a way that isn't supple, although sometimes it can be, but it's very much a total, complete covering of you. I see you kind of looking in the air, thinking
2: of other possible ways to describe it well I think everyone's reaction to being put in latex is different um for me it definitely felt like superhero suit mm-hmm. I felt in a very empowered I don't know if I felt armored but I felt like especially as somebody who had trouble finding um clothes to fit that I always like stretchy clothes because um have a long torso and long legs and long arms. And so it was really a treat to have a garment custom made that actually fit my body mm-hmm. um, and that I could move in. You know, being very athletic, I felt like, and the profession of dominance is a very athletic profession. You're not just sitting having your, well, I shouldn't say that. The way I do it is not just sitting having my feet licked. More power to you if that's your impression, <laughs> okay? no. No, no offense. But to me, it's part of it is being very physical, very much moving the, the person's body around, manipulating the person's body, um, lifting them in a, in a, into a suspension position, um, m- rotating them, moving them around the dungeon from one piece of equipment to another. And so latex was a marvelous um, liberation for me because leather is, is not very stretchy And I often felt like I was wrestling my outfit and wrestling my client at the same time. So um, supple, yes. Um, Boy, I think some people would say it was like a second skin. And once you Mm -hmm. put it on, you feel like you have perfectly smooth, beautiful skin. So if you're a hairy guy, for example, putting on a catsuit can feel very um, feminizing in a positive way. Uh, Oh, is this what a woman feels like to be hairless, to be, you know, perfectly smooth? Um, So it is a bit like stepping into a character or it creates um, a vibration so that if you get a flogging while you're wearing a catsuit, your whole body will relax into it. Mm -hmm. Um, Putting somebody in full latex, full inflatable latex, That can be a very mind-blowing experience. That is akin, I think, even to um, a drug experience, because your your cells are really just vibrating in a different way. Mm -hmm. And your mind might have any number of different kinds of responses to it. It might go completely blank. It might feel very turned on, and all you can think about is, you know, horny, horny, horny. (laughs) Uh, It might make you feel like you're literally a different person. Mm -hmm. with different physical mannerisms. Um, Or you might just feel limp. You might just feel completely safe and completely floaty. And yes, mistress, you know, just sort of going (laughs) with the flow, not feeling the pressure of being um, on, per se. Mm -hmm. Surrender. Yeah, any of those things.
1: I believe that is been on the top of my bucket list for a long time. And in talking to Mistress Datura not too long ago, who uh, goes by the moniker of Rubber Creature and then Matrix Dominatrix yesterday and, and Mistress Natalie from New York City, all talking about the joy of this floating in inflatable latex. It just the way they described it was mind blowing, and I'm sitting here listening to you describe it, and I'm going, one day, one day. <laughs> I want to talk about. You haven't something. lived
2: unless you've been in an inflatable cat suit or body bag, and then literally floating in a warm pool. Mm. Um, that is one of my favorite uh, activities: is to take somebody on a flotation.
1: It sounds amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just amazing.
2: Fantastic. This is Alicia Zadig, author of the new book, Yes, Mistress. I'm also Mistress Alicia, a
0: leading dominatrix and BDSM expert.
2: My book, Yes, Mistress, takes you on a provocative,
0: eye-opening journey into the
2: erotic worlds of kink, fetish, and female domination. Join me for a fascinating conversation. Male submission is more common than you think and more rewarding than you can ever imagine.
1: Yes, Mistress, now available on Kindle, and you can order your copy at yesmistress.com. Realizing that you're a polyamorous can be a wonderful insight. The Polyamory Dating Guide is a book about finding other people who share your view of polyamory and want to share it with you. This book includes a variety of sections in poly-specific dating, such as navigating online dating with a review of poly-specific dating sites and how to make a profile that works. Real-time dating tips that will tell you where to find polyam people and how to make a positive impression, how to date as an existing couple, and if you should. Dating as an introvert, queer in dating, and lots more. Get your copy at polyamorydatingguide.com. This is Tanya Tate.
0: And have you listened to my podcast? Tanya Tate presents MILF's Making Money. I share a whole lot of positivity, tips, and tools on how myself and other women in the adult industry make money on premium social media platforms. If you want to hear me interview many different guests, then get yourself over there, milfsmakingmoney.com. And you can also search. My name, MILFs Making Money, on all of your usual podcast platforms. And if you enjoyed listening to What Women Want podcast, make sure you get yourself over and subscribe to my podcast, MILFsMakingMoney.com. Are you liking what you're hearing? Check out the Total Archives wherever you find your podcasts. And please remember to subscribe so you don't miss a minute. And while you're there, help John out by giving him a rating and a review. We really appreciate your feedback. Now let's get back to what women and other wonderful humans want. I wanted to talk
1: about something you had brought up earlier, which is something we've never talked about on this show, which is long-term sessions, immersion sessions, weekend sessions. I know that for me, I've only experienced, I think the longest one I ever had was two and a half hours. And that was pretty much just a bondage session. There wasn't a lot to it. But the idea of giving myself and putting myself in someone else's control for an extended period of time I'm still trying to get my head around that about just how amazing it can be and how beautiful that would be. Can you describe for someone who has never experienced it, the kind of feelings that you go through in something like that?
2: Hmm. Well, for a top, I think it's, it's really a world building exercise. And for, for me at least, I never felt like the world really gave me what I wanted, right? Kids can go to Disneyland um, and my dungeon has been called Disneyland for perverts. You know, So it's like that idea when you're immersed in a world um, that really favors you, right? And is catering towards you it's it's a relief and a release that is singular and really helps to loosen up a lot of the shame, um, you know, self censorship as we were mentioning before, and and also really the sense of unfairness that the world, you know, kind of especially with capitalism and whatnot, just really forces us to do a lot of things that we find repetitive or tiring, and so. Um, I think you'll work up to it. I think that it's, it's great to work up to it, you know, at a couple hours at a time where you might, you know, get your own rhythm. There are always going to be people who are like, oh yeah, give me the three day, you know, overnight thing. And um, some of these people take to it like ducks. They're just, they get it. They understand that it's an ebb and flow. You're not going to be bombarded all the time because the human body needs to respond, integrate, shift, and then go into another stage, right? And as you're releasing further and further into the experience, you're not thinking, oh, how should I act? Oh, how should I respond? Oh, I'm supposed to be a slave. Oh, I'm supposed to be this or that. You are just allowing the, uh, the mistress or the top to lead you through the experience and of course by your reaction that person is then creating the world around you that you need so if you need a break you're going to have a break um with something to eat you know it's not like a constant experience
0: Mm -hmm.
2: so um i believe that it actually rewires your brain they -hmm. did an extra they did a, a research um study recently with um, men who were given um, child rearing time off. So they were able to, you know, take time off from their work and be paid. I think it was in the UK and to experience child rearing from, you know, the child's early ages and that they tested the brains before and after this. And the men showed changes in their emotional makeup. And I'm not going to quote it because I don't have it right in front of me. Mm -hmm. But I believe that going through a long extended experience like that, like a really good vacation, Mm -hmm. feel like you know yourself in a brand new way that can heal a lot of the trauma that we get from trying to fit ourselves into this, you know, capitalistic, patriarchal, puritanical, erotophobic world that we live in. Um, And we almost don't know what kind of trauma we've gone through until we actually go to that Disneyland and go, oh my God, the colors, the sensations, everything, the smells, the feelings, the words. You can feel the tension just come off of people, mm-hmm. and I've taken some very grumpy old men, and you know, after four or five days, they're just like at peace with the world themselves. And you know, it's my hope that they go out and use their powers for good. You know, <laughs> it's mm-hmm. the fantasy is that I could somehow magically make them a little more empathic, a little more caring, um, and a little less. Um, self-deprecating, I think is the word I'm looking
1: for. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're describing somebody I
2: know quite well. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, even you, you, you're talking about how uh, it feels unusual for somebody to take over the interview. Actually, I think sometimes the best interviews are when people aren't necessarily casting themselves in the role of interviewer and interviewee and that a new form of podcasting is really more like a friendly conversation than one person having to take on the mantle of being the controller, the person that has the structure, the person that is expected to keep things flowing, Um, especially if you're interviewing dominant women who all have their unique perspectives and are used to being able to call their own shots. It might be helpful to, to look at that, you know, in your own work and think to yourself, huh, maybe I can create for myself an experience of being a podcast interviewer that really takes into consideration the fact that these women call their own shots. And that doesn't mean that you have to be a passive pushover. It's not like, obviously, I'm not saying, you know, lie on the ground and just whimper, right? Mm -hmm but I think sharing power is um, a marvelous vibe to put out there in a podcast, particularly when you're talking about people who are pretty serious about power exchange.
1: Mm -hmm. I'm gonna ask a personal question uh, for me, since you have been so kind as to be talking about some things that, uh, I have experienced or haven't experienced. Sure, sure. When you feel as though you may not ever get to experience the things you dream about. And in my particular case, I mentioned this earlier, I get to talk about it all the time. I have heard so many stories about the reasons people do what they do and their authentic selves. And in hearing all these stories, you dream. You think about what it would be like. And then the drop will come from the frustration of wondering if it will ever happen. And then you get frustrated and you feel hopeless. And it's this just vicious circle. So how do you retrain the brain to think that things are possible? Because sometimes it feels impossible.
2: I think that's where, you know, this is gonna sound really woo woo, um, deep inner work, you know, in disconnecting from the expectations that the world has of you. And, you know, if you were a client that was asking me that question, I would say, well, to what degree are you still invested in a world that would deny you what you really want? To what degree does your identity rest upon a guy who's a guy, who's a man's man, who's operating in a man's world, for example? To what degree do you benefit from that and to what degree are you hampered or hindered by that, right? And to the degree that you can separate yourself from that through work, it's not easy, right? Um, then you start to believe in a kind of magic that draws the person who wants to live that life with you. And it doesn't happen like you think it will. It has to happen organically. Now, right now, I'm gonna say right at the top of my head, okay, you can even cut this from the interview if you want to. You're operating from a man's man perspective where the woman should look a certain way, where she should act a certain way, where you should act a certain way towards her and that you're used to getting your sexual or fetish needs met in a certain way, right? And that those ways aren't necessarily going to attract a dominant woman. They're not going to necessarily attract a woman who um, wants an easy time of switching, for example. Um, so, I think in a way, the more you make peace with the dual nature of your life and you feel deeply comfortable with expressing both sides of yourself, the more you're going to draw somebody who really feels that vulnerability that you've created, right? They're not gonna force you to be vulnerable. You can't do that. It's like hypnosis. You can't hypnotize somebody who's not genuinely consenting to being hypnotized. So I'm afraid there's no easy answer to that, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But the, I think the key is to just not get trapped in hopelessness. I think that our world wants us to be hopeless so we'll buy more things, right? And our world wants us to be sexually frustrated so that we are constantly thinking, oh, if I got the right haircut, oh, if I lost the 10 pounds, oh, if I read this book, Um, And it's really not about that. It's about living in yourself in a way that you feel very self-accepting. You feel very deeply in love with who you are, even if there's parts of you that are a little absurd, parts of you that are a little not figured out yet. And the more you love that imperfect part of yourself, the more it gets integrated into the rest of you and the softer and the more dear and lovable you feel about yourself and other people will fall in love with you as well. I
1: think that's a lovely way to finish up our podcast. And I really appreciate you taking the time to create an incredible experience that this has been. It has not been my typical show, but I enjoyed every single minute of it. And I thank you for that.
2: Absolutely. And that that catsuit looks amazing on you. So, um, you know, if I were you, I would treat yourself to a matching uh, mask or hood and uh, maybe with a ruffle or a Uh, a fun pair of horns, whatever you're feeling like, and uh, enjoy, enjoy, because I've really enjoyed seeing you in it. Thank you for getting dressed up for me. I have to admit I was really thrown
1: off by the way this podcast went, but realized that she was wanting a conversation as opposed to a formal interview, and I was happy I gave over control to the point where control was not the point. I'm looking forward to meeting Reb and Amanda along with a person who will succeed her inner dungeon when I visit Minneapolis soon. I'll definitely let you know what it was like to meet such an amazing human in person. We have a bonus show coming up this week as we take a trip to the House of Kinky Misfits in Pennsylvania. We have a bonus show coming up this week as we take a trip to the House of Kinky Misfits in Pennsylvania. And meet the head of the house, Mama Celestia, and her head slave, Slave Valkyrie, for a discussion of a life in a leather household that brings together a kinky family with a traditional family under one educational and very caring roof. And next Tuesday, we'll meet the adorable Dame, Mei Ling from Las Vegas, who uses a therapeutic way to absolve yourself and release all emotional and mental blockages. She seeks to find the true person that is inside of you, cutting through all the exterior and relating with your desires and deepest emotions. The raw truth is what she's after. And she'll join us next Tuesday. Until then, I'm John, always known as Hi There Catsuit, I hope I've earned the privilege of your time and I remind you to always remember consent and to love each other always.
0: What Women and Other Wonderful Humans Want connects with you. We invite you to follow us on social media. Check us out at WhatWomenWantP1 on Twitter, what women want Podcast on Instagram, And for our kinky friends on FetLife at www.podcast. This has been a presentation of Dating Kinky. Kinky done differently.